Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Well, one of my very favorite guests, one of my very favorite privacy experts, a wonderful colleague, a great friend, and a great mentor is joining us. Beth Givens, who is the founder and director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, is joining us again. We have to have her on every single year because she is terrific. She is in, as I said, the director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, which is a nonprofit advocacy, research, and consumer education program in beautiful San Diego, California. The PRC maintains a complaint information hotline on informational privacy issues, the only one of its kind in the country. It publishes a series of fabulous guides on information privacy issues. The topics include such things as internet privacy, wireless communications, credit reporting, identity theft, telemarketing, medical records, workplace privacy, employment screening, and so much more. And you can see all of these wonderful worksheets and help sheets and fact sheets and her speeches and testimony at privacyrights.org, O-R-G. Beth Givens frequently speaks and conducts workshops on the issue of privacy. She's participated in hundreds of media interviews, including the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer on PBS, CBS Evening News, CNN, 60 Minutes, 48 Hours, Good Morning America, Court TV, NBC Evening News, CBS Weekend News, and literally hundreds of U.S. daily newspapers and radio shows. She's testified numerous times on privacy, public policy concerns before the United States Senate, the California Legislature, the California Public Utilities Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, and on and on and on. In addition, she's been a member of numerous task forces dealing with privacy and identity theft and public policy issues. For example, the California Office of Privacy Protection Advisory Committee, the Trustee Wireless Privacy Committee, the Justice Management Institute's Electronic Court Records Advisory Committee, the Task Force on Criminal Records Identity Theft, the California Legislature's Joint Task Force on Personal Information and Privacy, and so many more. I I could just go on and on, but I want to get to talk to her pretty soon. I just want to also mention that she's contributed articles on identity theft in two encyclopedias, the World Book, 2004, and the Encyclopedia of Crime and Punishment in 2002. She's also contributed a chapter to the 2006 RFID application, Security and Privacy. She is the author of the Privacy Rights Handbook, How to Control Your Personal Privacy, And she's also co-author with me with a workbook that we did, a little handbook that we did for Office Depot called Privacy Piracy, which is how we got the name of the show. 
And she is the co-author and editor of the PRC Fact Sheets and the website at privacyrights.org. She is just so wonderful, and I just can't say enough great things about her. She walks on water for me. Thank you for joining us, Beth. Oh, thank you, Mari. Uh, That was quite an intro. I, sometimes I didn't think you were talking about me, but, but, but I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> well, you know, I think you're terrific. We've known each other now, I think it's 11 years. It's actually, yes, it, it's 11 years. Uh-huh. It's 11 years, and I just continue to learn from you, and I now enjoy your newsletter from the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, and I always enjoy talking to you. So we're going to share a lot of your expertise today with our audience. Thanks, Mari. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse? Well, yes, you've actually given quite a good description, but I'll kind of narrow it down to our mission. We have a two-part mission. One is consumer education, and the other is advocacy, and that's primarily advocacy uh, in the California legislature on the state level, and then on the federal level, we focus on the Federal Trade Commission. Um, The reason we stick with the California legislature, uh, and many of your listeners probably know this, but California is a precedent-setting, a trend-setting state. Things that happen here in the California legislature, uh, bills that are passed into law, often spread across the country and even into Congress to become laws elsewhere. A really good example of that is security breach notices, the requirement that when a company or a university or any kind of an organization, an agency, has a breach that exposes people's sensitive personal information, like their social security numbers, for example, that breached uh, organization must disclose to the affected individuals the fact that their personal information is now at risk. The reason uh, for doing that is so that these people can take some uh, proactive steps to prevent identity theft or other kinds of fraud from happening. So that that law, which passed uh, not that long ago, 2003, has spread across the country. It's now, I think, in all but a handful of states. And Congress has even um, considered in recent years uh, a bill that is similar to the California bill, California law, I should say. So that, that's why we focus on California, and that, that sort of, in a nutshell, is our, our advocacy side of our mission statement. You know, it, it's so incredible to me to see how many states really have followed suit on many of the things that we've developed, and, and even our, you know, security freeze. Many of the states have followed that, and then the credit reporting agencies have done that. And I know that you and the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse have done so much work in legislation, and I just think that our audience really needs to know that you yourself have been the one who has instigated all these wonderful privacy laws. So I, I want to thank you personally as a, uh, a, as a consumer here in California. Well, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. But I, I should, I should uh, explain that it really, a lot of this is oftentimes a collaborative project. We, uh, over the years, have developed... Uh, great working relationships with, I'd say, about a dozen California organizations. And see, that's another thing that's unique about California. We have so many public interest groups that are out there um, um, acting on behalf of consumers and and, and being active in the California legislature and and the regulatory agencies as well. So uh, we've developed really a strong... um, Oak collective uh, action body, I guess, if, if I could name it that. And once a year we get together and have a meeting up in Sacramento and we, we look back and say, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? What were our successes? And then we look ahead and say, what should we work on next year in the legislature? What are the big issues coming down the pike? We've been doing that for, gosh, more years than I can remember now. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons that California continues to be right on the cutting edge. And also the fact that our Constitution actually ensures a right to privacy, which is not in the federal Constitution and is really only in a handful of states. So that, yeah, that, that's, that's correct. And that goes back to 1972, to actually a voter initiative. It's a very, very important constitutional um, provision. And if you, if you read privacy books, oftentimes the California constitutional privacy right is, is lauded as sort of one of the strongest in the country. Yep. Well, you know, you've been called the Dear Abby of privacy. I've heard people call you that, and I like to call you that, too. Why don't you explain how that works? Well, yeah, that's, um, we basically invite people's questions and complaints. Um, you mentioned in the introduction our hotline. People can contact us by phone. We've got a web page contact form. 
Um, and and we take uh, inquiries, really, we, sometimes people will walk into the office with, with their questions. We do the best we can to troubleshoot for these individuals. We give them a roadmap on what they can do. In some cases, and this is one of the frustrations about privacy, uh, but it keeps us busy. In some cases, there's not a lot they can do, and I'm sure you know that, Mari, uh, as an attorney. There, there are some situations where the individual is just outraged, and uh, yet there's not a lot they can do except perhaps you know, write letters to their, their state legislatures and, and their, their people in Congress and the, and the U.S. Senate. Well, the other thing that they can do that we that you and I have learned over the years is that they can use the media. If something is really outrageous, sometimes if they get that into the media, then there's embarrassment on the part of the companies or the agencies that have committed such a privacy breach or privacy invasion. And that's another way to just get it out there and, and make it known. Yes, and actually, and that's a really good point, because that's one of the things we do. I call it our societal feedback loop. Um, we, when we get a complaint or a question, and, and, I, and I, you know, we agree in our small staff here that this is a big issue and it's probably a, an up-and-coming issue, um, oftentimes we'll get in touch with um, a legislative staff member, uh, also with, with members of the media, and say, hey, th- this particular situation is going on. We think it's really outrageous. We have an individual who is willing to be interviewed and will speak out. The, the victim is willing to be very public about this. And oftentimes when you've got the individual, the aggrieved person right there saying, hey, I want to speak out, um, that really helps get the story out. It also helps in the legislature. You know, that's what you did with me when I called you. I remember you many years ago in 1996 when I became a victim of identity theft you were the only website that I could find, the only place that really had anything on identity theft. And then you grabbed me and said, hey, I got somebody who's willing to talk. And, and that's how it happened. I that's did right. speak out and, uh, and I did end up doing exactly what you asked me to do, which was to speak to the media and let them know the kind of terrible things that were happening to me and other people. That's right. And, and really, you're, you've become a master at, at the media and... Uh, I think uh, you probably should feel really good and pat yourself on the back for all the good work you've done uh, just uh, with the bu- bully pulpit. Yeah, I think I think all of us have done that together to just bring our own victims out there to, to speak from their heart about what has happened to them because there are so many privacy invasions that have, that have really caused tremendous problems and damages to the people. And it's better than, than a lawsuit. Sometimes you can settle without even having a lawsuit. I've done that many, many times. Yes, I, I agree with that approach, uh, 100%. So let's switch gear and, and talk about the hot topics that you have on your hotline these days. Yeah, I would say that the, the top topic, um, we get a, a lot of hits on our, our website, is uh, data breaches or security breaches, a topic I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, you know, uh, ever since the California law was implemented, uh, it has brought the whole issue of the uh, really the peril uh, that our personal information is in has brought it to the forefront. And we we do a lot of work in that area, and we've got, you know, one of our fact sheets or our guides is on what to do if you've received one of these letters that says, uh, whoops, we uh, w- somebody stole our, our backup hard drive, um, and it, it has your Social Security number on it. Uh, we tell people, you know, what, what they should do, and in most cases to, to not panic is kind of our, our basic message. But there are things that you can and should do. But another big area, and it's especially, I think, a, a hot topic right now because of the poor economy, and that's employment background checks. Um, more and more employers are doing background checks these days, and unfortunately, um, the law is not all that great in, in protecting the subjects of those background checks. We can go into that in a little bit more detail uh, if you wish. But the third topic that is also a sign of the times and that we're getting a, a, a lot of complaints and questions about is debt collection practices. Oh, yes. Uh, if so many people are, are really suffering these days, um, trying to meet their mortgage, trying to pay off that, that credit card debt, and if they've lost a job or, or you know, one of, one of the, the spouses has lost a job or if, even if it's a half-time job, they're having trouble uh, making ends meet and pretty soon they get the debt collectors calling them, uh, haranguing them, um, making life really miserable. So that's a, a top topic these days as well. Right. In addition to those hot topics that you're hearing about, what, have, what other privacy issues do you think consumers should really be concerned about now? Well, I think there are a couple of issues that are behind the scenes right now, but I think that people are going to find in, in the not-too-distant future that, that 
that they're things that they're concerned about. And one is location privacy. I think most people know that their cell phones, for example, their mobile phones, their Blackberries, are, are able to locate them in an emergency. You know, let's just say that you're driving down a dark, windy, curvy road at night and you, you have an accident and you're all alone. Well, that cell phone can be used to locate you. Um, and then, of course, GPS locators in cars are, are you, you go to the electronic stores and you know, there's a huge array of these devices that can be purchased. So it, it's really kind of a, an up-and-coming um, technology. More and more people are using these locational devices. But, of course, there's a, a huge privacy issue there. Who holds that data? How long do they hold on to it? Could law enforcement get access to it if you were, um, uh, if you were considered to be part of a crime or a suspect? Uh, could the divorce attorney go for it and find out that you were, you know, uh, where you said you weren't at 2 a.m. the other night? So, you know, huge privacy issues, and, and we haven't even started looking at it. I mean, they always say technology goes faster than the laws uh, that protect us, and that is so true. In, in this day and age, the laws are way back in the 1970s and 80s, unfortunately, and we've got, you know, uh, new century technologies that are moving ahead at the speed of light. Right. So location privacy is one. And the other is something called tethered devices. And by tether, you know, something that, that is connected to you. Um, more and more of the, these devices, and I'm going to use the Kindle, Amazon's reading machine, the Kindle. Right. It's an example of something that you buy, but those books, in a sense, you kind of rent them. And there is a good example of actually Amazon going in without the consent of the individuals who had who own these Kindles, and actually electronically removing a couple of the books that, that were there stored on the Kindle. And you can store hundreds of books. It's an amazing device. But without telling them, um, they barely, it was, a, it was a problem with the, with the publisher, they essentially zapped these Kindles wirelessly, removed the books. And this is, it's, it's a huge irony, but one of the books was George Orwell's <laughs> 1984, <laughs> which is really kind of funny. <laughs> So that's an example of a couple issues, locational privacy and tethered devices that I think we're going to be seeing more of as, as big privacy issues uh, in the very near future. Right. You know, when a lot of people think about the GPS or the cell phones, they say, well, they talk about the, the positive aspects of it. For example, like, okay, so if, if I have a problem and I'm broken down, somebody can find me on my cell phone and, and help me, you know, mm -hmm. or GPS, the same thing. If somebody's out hiking and you have a GPS with you that they can find you, you know, with a helicopter. But we, there's the, always the dark side. What if somebody can find you that's stalking you? Or yeah. what if somebody can find you that wants to burglarize you or hurt you? Or There's always that dark side, too, that who might have access to it that really shouldn't even have access? Someone who's not going to help you, but somebody who's going to hurt you. you yeah, know? That, yes, it's a classic double-edged sword. And information technologies are, are essentially the double-edged sword. There are all of the positive aspects, as you've said, but quite often there's the dark side. And, and you know, I'm sure you, you have read news stories about the, the, the battered spouse who's trying to leave uh, her, her husband, uh, and he maybe puts a, a locational device, attaches it to the car in a hidden place and is able to find her. You know, stories like that kind of make your spine tingle. They do. And I, I should ask you, since you were talking about Kindle, I was thinking of getting it. I thought it's, you know, I saw somebody use one and I was thinking how great. I know there's a new Sony uh, type of Kindle coming yeah. out too as well. What do you think about that? I mean, are there other privacy issues I should think about before I buy one of those? Well, when you buy a book, well, first off, let's, let's just look at books in general because books are a great example of how our privacy has been protected uh, way back to the beginning of the 1900s. In libraries, libraries have a very strong privacy ethic. Um, they always have, and it's one of, one of I think, their, their most wonderful um, characteristics. When you check out a book from the library, um, your, your uh, circulation record is kept private by that library, and then uh, most of them will actually um, anonymize it after some time passes after you've returned that, that item. Um, the other thing is if you go into a bookstore, and let's just say you pay with cash, um, your purchase is private, but when you start buying books through, uh, through an online uh, transaction, that is not necessarily going to be private unless you go through, through really some rather uh, complicated uh, strategies to, to keep the matter anonymous. 
And so, believe it or not, one of the issues that we will be talking about this year at our annual California Privacy Advocates meeting is this whole issue of Google Books, online books, Kindle Books, and privacy. And if we need to maybe look into legislation that would give books in that medium the same protection that they have in physical form through the library and and through books purchased by uh, cash uh, from the bookstore. That makes a lot of sense. You know, when I go on, on Amazon and I go to buy a book, they already tell me, well, you these are books you I think you're going to find that you want to use or that you want to read. I know. I <laughs> because know. they know exactly what I've been buying. So, oh, you know, they always you, bring all the new privacy books, which, sure. you know, that's the double-edged sword well, again. Well, your, your profile and mine, I admit, <laughs> uh, our profiles are stored by Amazon. Right. Uh, you can actually choose another large uh, electronic bookstore, I, I, uh, Powell's, for example, huge bookstore up in Oregon. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, they don't keep uh, such a profile of you. So, you know, you, you, if you don't like it, people don't like it, they can do a little research and find some more privacy-protective um, merchants to work with. But you're right. There's the double-edged sword. And so on one hand, when they tell me these are books you might like, I actually do like some of them, and I do order them. So, you know, that goes back to the benefits and the burdens of these things. It's an, it's uh, that technology, again, it has all of these great attributes, but we don't have the laws to protect our privacy for the dark side. We don't, and, and actually that's what keeps keeps us going here at the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. That's why we're so busy. Um, it's uh, I tell people it's, it's endlessly fascinating, for one, but there's there's never... Uh, a problem with having too little to do. The, the issues keep coming forth. We, we keep needing to address them. Uh, we need to look into legislative measures. I mean, there's really, it's, 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 it's a fascinating field, but also one in which there really needs to be a lot more people and groups like ours and the other privacy groups. Exactly. But I think as people listen to you and as our students here on the campus listen to you, they might get real excited about getting into that field. That's well, what I'm hoping. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talking about students and the campus, we hear a lot about social networking, and especially with people in that college-age group, whether it's Facebook or MySpace or Twitter, whatever. And this is really scary for me. I mean, I, I, I myself am very uncomfortable about using these social networking sites. LinkedIn, I'm, you know, people must think that I'm really uh, thinking I don't know that I'm that I'm not nice or something that I don't want to join their LinkedIn sure. or that I'm being stuck up or something. But I, I'm actually scared. It exposes a lot of sensitive information on a lot of people, and these networking sites can be seen by just about everybody. So why don't you share some of the privacy issues that that I'm scared about? Well, I agree with you. There there is a, actually a huge generational divide uh, regard uh, surrounding this issue. I think people in their maybe starting in their late 30s, 40s, uh, 50s, uh, and and older um, are not comfortable with the whole notion of of exposing your life online for all the world to see and and telling people, hey, I'm going down to the coffee shop now and blasting that out to all of your quote unquote friends or followers. Would you would you like to join me? Um, so there is a generational divide. There have even been books written about this generational divide. Uh, young people are are not as privacy conscious uh, as I think people in the older generations, and I I hope I'm not making a too terrible a generalization about this, but I, I've certainly seen this in my work. Social networking is kind of the the big issue where where this uh, is exposed. Um, what one of the things that I'm very concerned about with social networking is how employers use it. I mentioned earlier that more and more employers are doing background checks. Well, surveys have been done and have found that the majority of employers are actually now looking on individuals' um, social networking pages like Facebook and MySpace and, and checking people out. And uh, and some of them are actually using what they see, maybe you know photos of an individual partying or, or doing something wild and crazy to make a negative decision. A um, couple of issues there, you know, one is uh, young, younger people or anybody using social networking really does need to think, am I in a situation in my life right now where what I say and expose on this, on this feature, this website, this system will somehow harm me? Um, another example is not only just employers, but I've heard of scholarship committees at college, colleges and universities also checking out 
their applicants um, on these social networking sites to see if the person they're considering for that full ride scholarship maybe uh, has some character flaws. So uh, you know you've got to think about those things, and when you're young and, and you get caught up in in the fun and the buzz of of, of being sociable through the social networks you oftentimes don't think about what's going to happen in the future. And, of course, as we both know, when you put something online, it's there forever. You know, even if, if it's deleted, there, there it is in cash, spelled C-A-C-H-E, not, not the right. kind of yeah. cash, but, you know, it's still there. Right, and it can come up again. Yes, it can. It can be, it can be searched through the big search engines like Google. You know, there's other scary stuff. I have to tell you this story. We recently went to the pageant of the Masters with some friends of ours in their college-age kids were with us, too. And in the middle, in the um, intermission, what the college-age student came up, and she was talking to, to me and her mother and said, oh, I just got this email because I had put something on Facebook that I'm at the pageant of the Masters in Laguna Beach, California. And she was from Arizona. And um, so she suddenly got a, a phone call. From oh somebody, a phone call, yes, and, and an email from somebody and a text message from somebody saying, I'm here too, let's meet. Oh, oh my God. Well, her mother and I freaked out, just yeah. totally freaked out because who is she talking to? She doesn't even know who she's talking to. That's and somebody right. wanted to meet her after the pageant. And we said, absolutely not. Of course, then you can imagine the tirade I went into. <laughs> what well, are you doing? Her, her eyes rolling. <laughs> she was, she was, and she did get scared, and I said, don't even answer that. Don't even answer that. So that was, I mean, that's just really recently, and she had no idea that she was going to get this by putting up, hey, you know, I'm at the pageant of the Masters. Well, somebody wants to meet her, and we don't know who that person is. Yeah, and, and I think more schools are getting into um, educational programs, teaching people about the ethical and safe uses of these technologies. At least I hope they are. Well, let's. Uh, how about... Twitter. I know that you guys are actually using Twitter with the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Right. And that, to me, let's let's talk about that. I know probably everybody listening on the campus knows about Twitter, but I bet there's a lot of business people who are listening who, who don't really know exactly how this works. Why don't you explain that for us? Yeah, Twitter is one of these social media um, uh, sites, and it enables you to send short blasts of messages, a maximum of, a, of a 140 characters, maybe, oh, 15, 20 words um, at most. And uh, you have uh, a group of people that you communicate with, and they're called your followers. So you go on to the Twitter.com uh, website to your particular Twitter page, and you can sign up to be a follower of, say, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse or, or the follower of, of your friend Mary Jane. And then they communicate by sending out these blasts of messages. And for, for many people, it's a social thing. Hi, I'm going down to the Third Street coffee shop. Join me if you're nearby. Or, hey, I just took uh, a test and got an A. Isn't that terrific? Um, and then people write back and they share. And if it's a really great message, they'll send it on to somebody else. And that's called a retweet or an RT. So there's, there's kind of a, a whole... Um, kind of be, set of behaviors surrounding Twitter. We use it like a lot of other public interest groups use it to send messages to people who have an interest in privacy. And mostly we, we send maybe one or at most two a week. For many people, Twittering is something they do all day long, or I should say tweeting. Um, they call their messages tweets. Um, but we'll put out a couple messages a week, and people can actually sign up uh, uh, for our, our feed, our Twitter feed, our tweets, <laughs> and if we, read, if we read a really good article, say, in the New York Times or the Washington Post that we think people would be really interested in reading, we'll put that out as a tweet along with the, the web link to that story. Or just this last week, we uh, sent out one of our alerts, and we, we send out an alert maybe once a month or so, um, and we pick one topic. This last week, is, the topic was be careful with your debit cards and how you use them. You could, you could un, unwittingly and unknowingly pay $38 for that $3 cup of coffee if, if, it, if it throws you into arrears on, on your banking account. And that's exactly what happened to my daughter. Really? Yes, it did. And I was furious, and we ended up, thank goodness, I finally showed her how important it is to get rid of that debit card. So yeah. she did get rid of the debit card. She has an ATM card. But 
it happened to her to the point where it cost her $185. Well, that's a really good example, and that, yes. that's what our alert was about. So we put that out as a tweet, and, um, and, and it's a great, really a great way to spread information. Um, and I, I'm excited about, about Twitter as a tool for public interest groups and, and educational groups such as ours. And, of course, we're trying to get now more followers. We maybe have all of 50 people mm-hmm. following us now. But, um, you know, at, at the end, I'd be happy to give your listeners uh, our Twitter address. And they well, can why don't follow you give it right well. now? Yeah, why don't you give it right now, Beth? Oh, okay. Well, it's www.twitter.com. Then, then you put in a forward slash, and then our name is Privacy Today, all one word. Privacy Today. So it's twitter.com slash privacy today, and you can sign up and start receiving our Low-frequency Twitters. Don't worry, we're not going to, to tweet you uh, uh, out of existence here. Well, you know what, my friend? You are beginning really to be a, a techie. <laughs> <laughs> you are a techie. But, you know, I get your mail, you know, your ma- I'm on your mailing list, and mm-hmm. I get all of your wonderful newsletters. So why don't we talk about that for a second, too, because... I saw that about the debit card, and I was thinking about, Liz, I was going to write you a quick email about that. But I get all of your newsletters because I think they're fantastic, whether oh, you're talking you. about, you know, how to protect your privacy when you're traveling or whatever else. It's, it's great. So let's, let's give our audience how they can sign up for your mailing list as well. Oh, okay. Well, you go to our website, which is privacyright.org, privacyrights.org, O-R-G, over on the left side, there are a lot of menu links going vertically down the page along the left margin. A little bit towards the bottom, there is a link that you can click on that says Join Our Mailing List. And when you go to that page, you can sign up for our alerts, which, which is the email newsletter, as you mentioned. If you're a member of the media, the press, you can sign up for our press releases. And there's also a, a sign up there for our Twitter feed. So it's, it's as easy as that, and, um, you know, we, we keep your... Your email address is in confidence. We don't share or sell them, of course, to any third party. And if you decide you don't want to receive any of this in the future, we'll gladly remove you from from the mailing list. Well, we're speaking with my very dear friend, my colleague, my mentor, and an incredible privacy expert. We're speaking with Beth Givens, who is the founder and director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. That's who you've been listening to. Of course, I'm going to give the website again, privacyrights.org. O-R-G. You must go there and see the fantastic fact sheets and a lot of the testimony and reports that they've written. And also, I want to mention, when you were talking before about the security breaches, you have a whole chronology of the security breaches that began since 2005. So that's, that's another thing to see about how many security breaches there have been, what kinds of security breaches there are, and the reports about them. It's terrific, Beth. Yes, uh, yeah, our, our chronology has become a big hit. We had no idea when we started in 2005, first, uh, how, how long it's gone on, now four years, but, but how many hundreds upon hundreds of these breaches have been added to our listing. And what makes me feel really good about it is that I, I do hear from security professionals, the chief, chief information security officers, they're called, who uh, write me and say, thank you, thank you. What I do is I'll print out several pages from the breach, list and take it to the staff meeting and try to to scare the the pants off everybody else to make sure that the people in our company are taking the precautions they should be taking so they actually use our 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 chronology as a teaching tool exactly and they can also take it to their boards and say you know what you don't give us enough money for security and you don't give us enough money for privacy because security and privacy are not a profit center no they're not and actually during hard times um that's those are the first to, Layoffs. Be, to be cut. Yes, it, it's really sad. But I've I've read many a news story about that happening uh, as we speak. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's used for so, so many good purposes. Now let's let's kind of switch gears again and go back to talking about your mailing list because you recently had an alert that I thought was really important about passwords and and you explained how people can create hacker proof passwords because if you you know a lot of people will still use like their dog's name, you know, mm-hmm. a three-letter name, like, you know, whatever. And and it's very important that they not do this. So why don't you talk to our listeners about how they can create passwords that are difficult to crack? Right. Yeah, it, it was one of our um, more well-received alerts, uh, 10 rules for creating a hacker-resistant password. And our, our my colleague and staff member, Paul uh, Stevens, um, wrote that, and he writes many of our alerts and does a terrific job. 
Um, first, of course, don't use a dictionary word like, you know, cat or door uh, or even in a combination of dictionary words. And don't use any of your personal information. I mean, those are tips I think everybody knows. But avoid common sequences. Some people go one 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 two two two. Um, so those are things to avoid. Instead, if if the system that you're on allows it, intersperse some characters like the pound sign or the dollar sign, um, and then also change the, the the case. Use a capital letter here, a, a small a, a small letter there, and. Um, and if you if you want, this is what I I do is it, it, sometimes these are get kind of hard to remember. You know, just a, a random stray bunch of letters and numbers and characters and capital letters, very difficult to remember. And of course, you don't want to write them on a yellow sticky and put them on your computer screen, <laughs> which we so hear about all the time. <laughs> this is what I do, and, and I found that it works well. Is I will actually take a phrase or a sentence, uh, maybe from a poem or just something that I know. And I'll make that into a password by using the first letters of each word, the last letters of each word. Um, I'll I'll just use Mary Had a Little Lamb as an example. I I don't use that one, so I'm glad to use it as an example. You can take the first letters, M-H-A-L-L, and maybe you could have a lower lowercase m and uppercase h. And then for the ll, since there are little lamb, there are two of them, you can insert the letter 2 in there. And if you're really excited about your password, you know, put an exclamation point at the end. Um, but that's a great way to make a, a password that is very hard to crack, but it's something that you can remember. Um, another thing that I do for remembering passwords, you said never use your pet's name. Well, yes, but I, what I do is I go back into, back into childhood, remember all the pets that we had. <laughs> first, all the kitty cats. Third, fourth, and fifth, <laughs> and I, I take their, their first initials, and then I'll, I'll mix them up with upper and lower characters. But I create a story in my head. <laughs> about the succession of pets in our family, and that makes a great password. Yeah, I was just talking to Jeff Levy. He had me on his show just last week, and he was talking about passwords. Now, he has 25 numbers and letters in his passwords. Oh, my goodness. I know. that's a, I usually do have about 12. Yeah, that's, that's the, good. They say more than eight. Yeah, yep. Well, well, th- well just let me say one couple other things. Okay, um, sure. Uh, the Microsoft website has a... Uh, um, has a service that they offer to actually test your password. How crackable is your password? So uh, that's one of the things that you might want to look for uh, on their website. And then, there, then if, you're, if you use Firefox as your browser, they actually have something called a password manager. And um, it allows you to basically keep track of all the different passwords in a secure environment. So just a couple things people can think about. Yes, because it is hard to remember. And, you know, for me, I've got so many passwords. I have them locked up, actually, in a little cabinet in case I forget. I've I've memorized most of them, like for my bank and for my different credit card companies. I've got different ones. But I I sometimes get all confused. But I do keep it in a lock cabinet, not with a sticky. I I remember years ago, this was pretty funny, I... um, met this woman actually when I was doing my PBS special she was doing my makeup and she says well what is it what are you on this thing for and I explained to her about identity theft and she told me the story of how she had a little notebook in her drawer at her home next to her computer and she had all her passwords in it for her bank for her credit cards etc and she was going out of town and her neighbor who she was pretty friendly with um, offered to take in her mail for her and just bring it to her house and kind of water her plants, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so while she was away, he came in and he did water the plants, et cetera. And he also got into her passwords. And then he moved away. And then she found out that all the money was taken out of her accounts. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah, because she kept all of the passwords in this notebook in a just in the drawer right by oh. the computer. Well, Unf- you know, even the experts say... If you're going to write them down, do just exactly what you're doing, Mari, and that's put them into a locked file cabinet or some locked space that, that people can't get into. And yes, if you use a lot of passwords, you know what? You are going to have to write them down. Yes. And, you know, there, there are some other little, um, like these thumb drives that have r- rotating passwords. That Right. Yeah, and those work pretty good, too. I know Amanda uses that all the time, and I, I should start using them, too. I think they're a great idea. They are, and then they also can en- encrypt those files. Yeah, and and 
it's it's amazing to me all the different things that are happening but you know when we're talking about eight numbers and nine numbers it reminds me of the social security number which is the key to the kingdom of identity theft and and it's so much of a privacy invasion yes but we were reading recently in in the newspaper about the Carnegie Mellon University study in which they found that if they were able to get the birth date and the place where someone was born that they could actually put together and and calculate the the social security number. Yes. So, so what about this? Beth? Well, that was such a, a wonderful, useful study, and and so important to get that out there, so that you know those uh, who make decisions about such things as 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 identification numbers can realize that we've made a terrible mistake with the social security number many many decades ago by allowing. When I say we, I mean I mean our our lawmakers by allowing it to be used for other things other than just the administration of your retirement accounts. It should never have been adopted as the military ID number. And, and of course, that thankfully, um, recently they decided they would no longer use it as a military ID number. Um, but it should never have been used as the Medicare ID number. And Medicaid. I, and it's, what? And Medicaid, too. And Medicaid, yes. I vis- visit my dad, and he's carrying this card in his wallet that has his Social Security oh. number in it. What if his wallet were stolen? Yes. So, I mean, it, it was a huge mistake, and the mistake has been compounded and compounded as time has gone on. And, and of course, now it's used as more than just an identifier. It's also used for authentication, or authentication, I should yes. say. Um, the credit bureaus and the credit card issuers will use the Social Security number as both an identifier and an authenticator. So, if you, let's say a crook is applying for credit in your name, if they have your social security number, it makes them look like the real person to that credit card issuer who is making a decision about whether or not to grant credit. Oh, there's name. Oh, okay, good. You've got social security number. That's all we'll need. We'll grant credit. Well, that's why identity theft is at, you know, the epidemic levels that it is today, is just because the credit issuers, uh, unfortunately, uh, irresponsibly and carelessly adopted the social security number as a way to authenticate the applicants for credit cards. And they know that this is still going on, yet they still use it. This is the thing that's so crazy, because it's not like they don't know this. And they don't know that anybody else could you know, could easily get your social security number if there's an unscrupulous employee in your right. doctor's office. And we know so much about these insiders, unfortunately, who have access to this sen- sensitive information can use it. It's craziness. Yeah. It is crazy. And I... You know, I, I would like to be hopeful that we're going to move in, into a, a, another era, but uh, in terms of, um, you know, go, getting away from using the Social Security number as an authenticator, you know, what, what I've proposed is, you know, a multiple um, data elements. Yeah, you know, multiple sure layers, yeah. Four, four or five data elements will match, and if they don't, then you need to get in touch with that person and say, hey, are you applying for credit right now? Um, because we have some anomalies that point to fraud. And, uh, of course, they don't want to slow down the process. Right. And it's largely an automated process. You know, human, human eyes and human hands and human brains are not making these decisions. Not even monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> it's monkeys these computers. Might do a better job. Yeah, I think they would do a better job. I'm, I'm hopeful that the red flag rules, which, you know, the yes. Federal Trade Commission has required that companies now that have your, that issue credit, have to have an identity theft prevention program, and they also have to have a whole set of protocol for what to do with people when they do become victims. So I'm, I'm hoping, I'm just hoping. I am too. But, but, but I just wanted to add one more thing. We started off this, this segment talking about the Carnegie Mellon University study. Right. And I, I, I wanted to follow up on that, because basically this researcher was able to guess people's Social Security numbers by just knowing a couple of things, where they were born yes. and the date of birth. And... Uh, and I think he, was able, he used the, the Master Death Index as kind of a test data set. Um, but I think he was able to, to, uh, to guess maybe, what, 5%? It's a, a small yeah. percent, but when you think of the hundreds of millions of people who have Social Security numbers, it's a lot. And I just wanted to tell a, a personal story. Uh, my sisters and I, we all got our Social Security numbers as children at the same time. And so the first three digits uh, of all three of us, are uh, are the same right yep and and again of course now with all these security breaches <laughs> both online and offline people don't even have to bother to guess they can just steal it so yeah, you know yeah, i mean that's the I other know. side of the coin too yes yeah 
So let, let's go back to this issue about background checks. You know, here we have students who have graduated recently. They're trying to get jobs. We have people who are applicants who were maybe laid off. I mean, everybody is out there looking for a job. And I think employment background checks are so scary. We talked a little bit about it with regard to the social networking that people can look at your background checks. But let's go and talk about some of the rights that people have under federal law and and why it's so important. Yes, it it really is. This is really at the top of our list in terms of issues of of concern. The the federal law uh, for background checks is, believe it or not, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. There's a, a subsection that deals with background checks in, in, in investigative consumer reports, as they're called. But it's very weak. It's like the poor, shot, poor, poor stepchild of the FCRA. Um, and it's not a very strong law. That it, it, so if you apply for a job and the employer hires a third-party background check screening company, then the, the federal law applies. But, um, and you do have a right to know... Uh, of of the rejection and the fact that you can get a copy of that background check if you have been rejected based on what is in the background check. And that's called an adverse action report, and you have a right to get a copy of the report. So you can, you can determine if there perhaps was an error in the background check. And indeed, there are errors, lots of errors. People with very common names, for example, can get mixed up with somebody with the same name who has a criminal record. Or uh, there can be mixed files where, you know, a couple of different records are pulled together and it basically makes you look like somebody who shouldn't be hired. Or how about um, identity theft? You identity and I, theft. Yeah, you and I have talked about so many of victims who've been victims of identity theft to have these, you know, things in their, in their background check that have nothing to do with them. Exactly. Wrongful criminal records. It's, it's, in my mind, the worst kind of identity theft. It's very, very hard to first off, learn about, and secondly, uh, recover from. One of the problems is, let's just say that the employer says, oh, but the job pool was was really excellent, and that's why we didn't hire you. Right, they Um, don't tell you the truth about the fact that that there was something negative. Right. And so, therefore, in that situation, that's a loophole. You you don't really have a right to get a copy of that background check because it wasn't uh, because of, of bad information per se. It was because the job pool was so terrific, or at least the employer says that it's so terrific. And you remember years ago, Scott Lewis, that client of mine, that that's exactly what happened to him. He didn't know that there was an an arrest for murder and there was a, you know, that that was in his background checked in Ohio. He had no idea. He didn't even have a clue about it. And that was going on until we found it. So you're right. That's a huge loophole. I think that Every person who authorizes a background check when they're getting when they are trying to apply for a job, they should get an automatically get a copy of this background check. But there's there's even another uh, loophole in the federal law, and, and it it has to do with the third party uh, background check company. Let's say the employer uses one of these many online information brokers and does the background check him or herself. Right. They don't hire a third party. Well, guess what? The federal law doesn't apply in that situation. And this is a law that was written in 1970, before the era of the Internet, before online information brokers became so prominent. Now employers can just do the background check themselves, and they're not covered by the law. Yeah. Now, what's happening? Are you asking that to you know for a change in that or i remember yes uh first off we have made a change in california so in california no matter what you have a right to get a copy of of that uh background check right specifically the public records that were used to to compile the background check um a few other states a handful also have similar laws i think minnesota is one of those states um i i have contributed to a process with the obama transition team um Oh, a, a number of, of the privacy advocates got together, uh, and it was organized by a wonderful advocate in Washington, D.C., named Jeff Chester, the Center for Digital Democracy. He pulled yeah. a bunch of us together and, and got the Federal Trade Commission's transition team to meet with us, and we met by phone and in person. And we each wrote a one-page uh, issue paper on issues that we thought the new administration, the new Federal Trade Commission, should look at. And I wrote one on employment background checks, and I wrote another issue paper on online information brokers. And, of course, those two issues are are related. I hope that in time the Federal Trade Commission will 
will have um, find the time and the will to really look at the work. I think we did excellent work pulling together these key issues and the issues that have been ignored for so long in the previous administration. So that's what, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're proceeding slowly, but we're hoping that our work will have some effect and that there will be changes perhaps in the Federal Trade Commission's rules or perhaps through Congress. I actually have more faith in the uh, administrative process through the FTC than I do of Congress. Right. If they only were given enough resources to do it, yes, that, that, exactly. that's another problem because they're overwhelmed. They really are. I know when even this whole idea of having a consumer financial commission, which was proposed recently, that's that's on hold. But that was another way to try and get some help for consumers if they have problems and with all their finances. But uh, you know, the Federal Trade Commission said, no, no, don't give, don't set up that commission. Just give us some more money. Yeah. <laughs> give us some more people to help us. It's yeah. uh, it's really unfortunate that we don't have the kind of help for consumers at the federal level that we really need. You know, it's true. And, and actually, here, here's another issue related to background checks. Um, credit reports can be used as a background check. Um, that is not a violation of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And uh, in, especially in today's economy, I think it is so unfair for an employer to pull a job applicant's credit report when the job has absolutely nothing to do with financial management. And Quite what, frankly, and, even, yeah. even if it did have something to do with financial management, I just think it's wrong for employers to pull credit reports and make hiring decisions based on, essentially, your ability to handle money. Now, employers will say, but this, this is a, a test of character. You know, somebody who's irresponsible with, with their money, well, heck, we don't want them on our staff because they're probably irresponsible across the board. Well, that's a very, very unfair value judgment. Again, you know, look at the economy, people losing jobs. Um, losing their homes, uh, homes going into foreclosure, uh, having uh, credit card debt that builds up. Uh, you or know, medical I, expenses. Maybe they have somebody got cancer in their family uh, or they exactly. had, you know in what fact, I mean? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that there's so many things that happen with many, many people with regard to medical emergencies. Exactly. Well, in fact, I think that bankruptcies, the highest uh, reason for bankruptcies is, is medical, uh, catastrophic medical, medical yes. expenses. But anyway, so on that theme, we are uh, behind a bill in the California legislature that would prohibit the use of credit, re- credit checking, credit reports, to make hiring decisions. And we had to put in the exception. Uh, there, there is an exception for uh, jobs in which financial management is, is the, the key task that that individual will, will be engaged in. So, you know, so far so good. It, it's made it through the various committees. Uh, hopefully, if it can get through the, the last uh, hurdle, which is the California Senate, it will then uh, be sent to the governor's desk. And we hope that he has enough compassion and understanding in this day and age of, of, of the bad economy to, to not veto it. You know, and I can understand t- to some extent if, if someone is in the financial industry. I remember several years ago, and I think I told you about this case, where this woman called me from Santa Barbara, and she had just gotten a job with one of the top accounting firms. And when she authorized them to pull the credit report, there was a ton of stuff on there that was very negative, And it was really from identity theft. And they told her that they had to put her acceptance for the job on bay and, you know, uh, you know, on the side until she could prove that she was a victim of identity theft and clean it up because they said, we can't have you working as a CPA in our firm if you have this kind of credit. I mean, you just aren't a good role model. We're worried about it. It just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, I can kind of understand, although it wasn't really fair to her at all, but but that I think that exception, at least if you get your foot in the door and it's an exception for just the financial industry, it, maybe later they can change that too. Well, and it might help the bill get through. And we, we use the term incrementalism yes. to, 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 to explain our approach. I mean, yeah, this year we'll, we'll, we'll work on this bill and we don't like one aspect of it, but maybe next year or the year after or when there's a different governor, we might uh, try for the part that we failed at this year. Right. And I've seen you do it. And I've, I've learned that from you, that it does change that way. But- yeah. You know, I've had to learn patience in this process. <laughs> which I don't have much of. Um, But when it comes to legislation, especially in the California legislature, which is, by the way, a full-time legislature, very few states have a full-time professional legislature, and some people think that's terrific, and others think it's terrible. But, you know, we, we do have the ability to take an incremental approach in California. 
You know, another huge concern for privacy these days is, is the Internet. I mean, there is just, I mean, the Internet is like the Wild West. I mean, it's wonderful. We have great resources. We can learn so much. It saves time and when we're trying to do research. But on the other hand, we got all these dark sides. Let's talk about cloud computing. A lot of people don't even know what that is. Can you explain that for us, Beth? Yes, it is a relatively new term, cloud as in the clouds up in the sky. It's uh, this notion that you don't hold your data on the servers that are right there in your office. Um, you actually have your data files up there in the cloud. You actually hire out, you contract with the company outside of your own facility to house the data, and then you connect to them through a high-speed broadband network. And it actually can, can be a very, very... Um, efficient and cost-effective way to do business because you may not need to have a big expensive server that gobbles up lots of energy in your office for those few sensitive data files that you have. Why not uh, send them out to the cloud and just pay for those computing resources that you actually need? And more and more uh, organizations, companies, um, nonprofits, government agencies are actually using the cloud. Um, but there are some huge issues, and, and one of uh, my colleagues, the World Privacy Forum, has issued uh, a, an excellent report on both the security and the legal issues involved with placing sensitive data resources out there on somebody else's servers. And uh, right, I think right in your backyard, Mari, Los Angeles City, uh, the city council has been examining a proposal to put several of its um, data files containing very sensitive personal information out on the cloud. And they've actually, um, because of the fact that uh, several of us from the privacy world uh, have written letters and attended their meetings and, uh, and expressed our concern about security and responsibility, they've actually put it off and they will be discussing it more in the near future. Um, they apparently are determined to go to the cloud because they're going to save a lot of money. But I think they're probably going to make sure that the security is ironclad. And I, I hope that, you know, at this stage of the game that, that such assurance can actually be obtained. Uh, I myself, you know, here we've got a public agency, the city of Los Angeles. All right, should a public agency really be a trendsetter? Should it step out there on the cutting edge? Maybe it shouldn't because it's holding in a stewardship role all of this sensitive personal information. Maybe it should wait until that particular industry matures a bit and does develop the strong security practices and technologies that are needed. So, you know, if I ruled the world, I would say, hey, city of Los Angeles, wait a bit. Wait until this, this industry and this technology is more secure. And there are even, you know, there are more legal structures to protect situations in which uh, personal data is on a server other than your own. And are there restrictions when you're with the cloud computing that, that everything be encrypted and to a certain... No, there really aren't such... That's an example of technology racing ahead of, of legal structures. Oh my no, gosh, um, that, that's I, what I was thinking because I've been reading about it and getting all these notices about it and saying, oh my goodness, you know, what about if there's a security breach there? And, and it's like you're saying, if the city of Los Angeles and all the databases that they have, mm -hmm. it's, it's frightening. Why, you know, I don't understand why we can't have that kind of at least, um, you know, restriction on it that it, if you're going to do the cloud computing, right. that that you're going to have some encryption. Otherwise, there should at least, in the very least, be a private right of action if there's any breach. You know, there should. I, I'm quite certain that the city of Los Angeles is, is making sure that the contract that, they, that they've established has very strong security requirements in it. Um, but here's another issue. What if that company goes out of business? Yes. What if they file for bankruptcy? What happens, first off, to the continuity of service? Uh, secondly, what happens to the data? There's, these are some of the issues that are explored in that wonderful white paper that's on the World Privacy Forum's uh, website. And that's worldprivacy.org. Uh, worldprivacyforum.org. That's right. That's yeah. right. Thank uh -huh. you. Well, you know what, Beth, believe it or not, we are out of time. And there were so many more things I wanted to talk to you about. We always have to have you back again because we never have enough time. Uh -huh. But I want before we end, I, I want you to just give your website again and your Twitter website. Sure. Happy to. And thanks so much, Mari. I really enjoy talking with you. Always. Um, yeah, our, our website is www.privacyrights.org. And our Twitter page, our Twitter feed is uh, 
twitter.com slash privacy today, all one word, privacy today. Well, you are wonderful today and always. And so we will have you again back real soon. Thank you, Mari. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, and we've just been speaking with Beth Givens, the director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts. You can also listen to archived interviews and write us about what's important to you in the information age. We want you to tell us what we need to tell you about privacy. Thank you very much for joining us. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 